breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. You found it. This is the place where you can get some honest review of what's happening in America, what's happening in the world when it comes to Islamic reform, counterterrorism, counter-radicalism, and what needs to change ideologically, and what are some lessons we can learn day-to-day on the news of the day. And, bonus, it happens to come from a patriotic American Muslim. It's always good to be with all of you if you're back. If you're new, thank you for joining us. Please share with your friends. Well, on the good news front, I have to start with the good news this week. Iran's largest warship catches fire, sinks in the Gulf of Oman. Woo-wee! A lot to celebrate there. The fact that their largest warship is now underwater. The blaze began last week, and the farce media, Iranian media, reported that their efforts failed to save the 679-foot Kharj, which was used to resupply other ships in the fleet in the sea and conduct training exercises. State media reported 400 sailors and trainees on board fled the vessel with 33 suffering injuries. The ship sank near the Iranian port of Jask, some 1,200 kilometers southeast of Tehran, on the Gulf of Oman near the Strait of Hormuz, the narrow mouth of the Persian Gulf. Photos circulated on Iranian social media showing sailors wearing life jackets evacuating. Iran officials offered no cause. What a wonderful story from the AP. You know, these guys, uh, in, there was some reports last week that Nasrallah, the spiritual leader of Hezbollah, the terror arm of the Iranian government and the IRGC in, in Lebanon, uh, has possibly been ill. Well, it's not been conform- confirmed. So we'll wait and see. Again, fingers crossed for more good luck for the comeuppance of the Iranian terror regime that exists, that now is probably cheering as they've had a a wealth of opportunity that's come their way along with President Biden's change in policy, President Biden's appeasement of the Iranian regime and their attempt to give them back the sanction relief and others that came with the nuclear JCPOA. You know my position on that. I think that Hamas is armamentarium. This week, actually, we also heard that Iran is ready and willing to give another 10,000 missiles, rockets, to Hamas. Still, by the way, remember last episode I talked about the hypocrisy, nobody reporting and why the, the antagonism between Shia and Sunni of Hamas and Hezbollah or Hamas and Iran and Assad was not being reported on how well they're working together now. Nobody cares. And the left media to point out the hypocrisy, to point out the fact that it's not. Hamas doesn't care about the Palestinians and their human rights. It only cares about its own power. And make no mistake, they saw an opportunity for power with the beginning of another war this this past month or so. Because well, why wouldn't there have been conflict under Trump? What changed when Hamas and terror organizations see 
an image of strength and that they're going to get nothing but actually more losses out of attacking Israel, our greatest ally. When they see that, they're not going to attack. They get nothing out of war. But when they see a president who has begun dismantling the nuclear uh, uh, maximal pressure campaign that we had, when we see a president that begins to hand billions to the Iranian terror regime and talk about even no longer naming the IRGC a terror organization, you see other terror organizations begin to act, begin to see a green light, that they're going to get something more, that now if they attack and create a war, they will have a bargaining chip, which is no war. Because right now there has been a state of no war. But once they get back into conflict, the cessation of war becomes a bargaining chip. And with Biden in place, they felt that they had much less to lose than to gain. So, we'll cheer a large Iranian ship that has sunk on its own because of its ineptitude or whatever, its technological devastation. Who knows? But we can only pray for more. This week I wanted to talk to you about, you know, it's interesting in the, in the post-9-11 era, there was a lot of conversation about Muslim rights, civil rights, and whether the Patriot Act and other acts and then those things that came after it in Europe and in America were targeted, targeting Muslims all the way to the crescendo of the so-called inappropriately, propagandistically labeled Muslim ban of countries that were felt to be chaotic, anarchical, Six nations that happened to be Muslim majority, but the media wanted to label as a Muslim ban just because the Muslim victim narrative seems to sell, seems to get followers. And on the heels of Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar's propaganda, that continued to sell. But for a decade, for almost 20 years, post 9-11, we have seen now that Whenever possible, Muslims as victims is a card that is not only played, but has created and and grew, grown rather, has grown many an organization like the Council on American Islamic Relations, Muslim Public Affairs Council, and others that have grown on the backs of fundraising because Muslims are being attacked and because of the anti-Muslim bigotry or a term that they call Islamophobia. So as a result of them fighting Islamophobia, you saw the industry of Islamists, by the way, many of them did not sell themselves as what they are, which is political Islamic operatives, Islamists, but rather as simply civil rights groups, groups of Muslim lawyers, groups of ACLU folks that were also Muslim Islamists, on and on. So the bottom line now we see this year with President Biden also a spike of anti-Semitism. And in almost every category you see a spike of anti-Semitism. Category of offense being uh, verbal abuse, social media, crimes, 
hate crimes. The Jewish community, again, is on the front lines, unfortunately, of this heinous xenophobia, uh, bigotry, call it whatever you will, it is evil, and it is anti-Semitism. But why did I mention that after the Islamophobia campaigns? Well, the response publicly is very different to them. You see Governor Cuomo in his press conferences talking about, well, this is sort of what happens when people want to get out after the pandemic is they need to, not number one, not be afraid. And he sort of circumferentially gets into the topic of anti-Semitism. Maybe he mentioned it, maybe he didn't. But boy, when he was talking, by the way, there's also a lawsuit going through on how the Jewish community was targeted for identification and arrests for violating the social gathering laws that Governor Cuomo and others put into place. And we saw this happening as Bill de Blasio openly targeted the Jewish community. And thankfully now there are some courageous legal folks taking this on in the court system. And we at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy have been very supportive of their attempts publicly to take on the bigotry of how the shutdowns were selectively were selectively enforced against religious communities. So the point here is there are many different battlefronts, many different battle lines and, and areas in which we're debating about where the government's role is correct, overreached, inappropriate when it comes to religious freedom and religious practice and personal religious practice especially. And when it came to Muslims in the past 20 years, how many times did you hear, how many times did you hear discussion about the rights to wear a hijab, the rights to wear, and not only publicly, which I've defended uh, unequivocally, uh, but uh, in uniform. Uh, with police uniforms, military uniforms, etc. And again, uh, that's uh, that's a debatable subject and uh, uh, can typically be accommodated based on uniform restrictions and uh, the covering of hair, per se. Um, but it can be accommodated, but may not necessarily be to the detail of what the orthodox law would be to cover the neck, for example, etc. But... You wonder why I'm going down these this area. Well, this week, by the way, that debate happened for years, and and over and over, you felt uh, you heard the Islamists say it was xenophobia to make Muslims not allowed to wear that. Then you had countries like France, forget America, France, in which they said their identities, the laicite policy, so they prevented and said that it was illegal for Muslims to wear the hijab in public schools and public settings. Uh, that were government-controlled. And then you saw it also in other countries. I believe Austria may have something similar. Um, Might be wrong on that. But bottom line is the debate was that you take away Muslim identity, you take away Muslim freedom. And most people who believe in religious freedom obviously defended those things. Now, I drew the line at the niqab, the covering of the face, since there's no constitutional guarantee 
uh, or or epistemological guarantee for religious freedom when it comes to covering your face and anonymity in the public. Not to mention that that is also a tool of misogyny and abuse and, and other aspects in which the harms far away the benefits. So now that brings me to a wonderful piece written by Bruce Bauer in the New York Post this week in which he said, are American Jews going to be the next, is America going to be the next country that Jews flee? And there are a number of issues of concern related to anti-Semitism, obviously, that's rising, and I touched on some of them earlier in the program. But then he quoted Aaron Kayak, a Biden a team Biden operative who said this week, he said, it pains me to say this. Aaron said, and by the way, Aaron is an Orthodox Jew, but if you fear for your life or physical safety, take off your kippah and hide your Star of David. KX's official White House title is Jewish Engagement Director. And his tweet revealed much about Team Biden's views on anti-Semitism and cultural politics in 2021, said Bruce. So this is not just a Team Biden staffer. This is the head of Jewish engagement. The head of Jewish engagement is telling Jewish faithful to hide their identity in public. What would have happened if we said that to Muslims? Even in military uniform instances, the military, the U.S. military has been bending over backwards in order to see if accommodations can be met. And yet, now, under the Biden administration, an Orthodox Jew is telling his community to possibly think about concealing who they are because of the attacks that are happening on them. And yet, how many of these activist Islamists from Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and uh, Nihad Awad from CARE and, and others gave us lecture after lecture about the need for Muslim women to feel comfortable when wearing the hijab outside. And absolutely they should be comfortable. America's first liberty is religious freedom and the moment our religious communities don't feel comfortable wearing a kippah, a cross, a hijab, or anything else on their body that makes them feel faithful and identifies them because they choose to be identified, not because the government does or anything, because they choose. The moment that starts ebbing our democratic infrastructure of rights and protections will erode quickly. Now, you see this approach with the left being something that's very typical, right? And that uh, they, they are the arsonists who are trying to say that they didn't start the fire, but they want to help put out the fire of bigotry and hate, etc. And they don't realize that the arson that they did was the huge appeasement process that happened with a terror organization, Hamas. And it unleashed global anti-Semitism because the propaganda was not that Israel was defending itself. The propaganda was somehow that Israel was war, was the warmonger. 
and you saw a Google director of diversity now finally relieved from his position because they found in his history discussions in which he said Israel wanted war, sought war. You can find the quote, it's offensive. And yet Google did not fire the individual. So you see, this is not just about one or two incidents. You have in the left a a, a culture of, a, a woke culture in which the approach to racism when it comes to the African-American community is one of scorched earth. If you're white, you must be racist. And if you say anything that even questions some of the intimations that somebody's a bigot or somebody's a racist or, 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 or whatever it might be when it comes to that agenda, then you must be a bigot. And in fact, many of those who are questioned or question it, end up getting doxxed, end up getting abused, threatened, etc. And yet, when it comes to the left's approach to often their own communities, right? A majority of the American Jewish community is democratic, is left. And yet you listen to Barry Weiss and others, they'll tell you how little diversity of ideas there are in the left that the collectivism has become pathologically rampant and oppressive. And this falls in line, right? You have the director of Jewish communications and outreach telling his community to hide their faith, to conceal it. That never ends well. European history has a horrific track record of what happened when the Jewish community had to do that. Ending in the Holocaust while anti-Semitism continues and we see it with many Jews now in the past decade, if not more, fleeing back to Israel and having to leave France, having to leave many of these communities where now it's not just about Aryan supremacism that's anti-Semitic in Europe, but it's about Islamism. The influx of Islamist immigrants in the hundreds of thousands has created a culture in which the Red-Green Alliance has now made it more vogue to be anti-Semitic. And I want to get to a piece by Phil Boaz in the Arizona Republic here in a bit. But just to finish Bauer's comments in the New York Post. He noted, it was heartening to read the replies to KX tweet. Nobody should have to hide who they are to be safe in America, quote unquote. The type of submission never led to anything good. It's interesting, I didn't fear for my life or physical safety under Trump. Having lived in Europe for decades, the author said, I'm not unfamiliar with the idea of Jews concealing their identity. And then he goes on to talk about what's happening there now, as I just mentioned. And he says, Even as European Muslims audaciously block traffic by praying in the streets, European Jews don't dare hang a tiny Star of David from their necks. 
And then this quote from 2013, 49% of Jews in Sweden said they didn't dare wear such objects in public. And at the time it was 40% in France and 36% in Belgium. And these numbers have only risen since that time. And you see tests about distancing themselves from Israel and other things which are just offensive and it's not even the new anti-Semitism. It is anti-Semitic to claim that you are part of the BDS movement that simply wants economic sanctions, that actually wants to end the economic viability of the state of Israel. So my message to the Islamists out there and to all of you who should put pressure on the Islamists is to ask them if the personal representation and expression of who you are religiously is manifested in your practice of what you wear from the hijab to the rest of your body. Why would you not then come out vociferously against on the, on the left against anti-Semitism and against what it's, what it's doing to the Jewish communities. And you should stand against any type of hint. Talking to you, Team Biden. On religious outreach communities that say that somehow you can decrease hate crimes by making it less apparent who the minorities are. Saying you take off your kippah would be the same thing as trying to tell somebody of a certain race or a color that they should pretend to not be that color. Faith decisions are immutable. They are something we choose that we do not want to change, that we choose as our first liberty. So let's see what the left has done to defend that. The chancellor and provost of Rutgers University apologized for an email that they sent out condemning anti-Semitism. And, and you aren't going to believe this. You're, you're really not. If you haven't heard this story, you're not going to believe this. She sent, so the, the Rutgers University New Brunswick Chancellor, Christopher Malloy, and Provost Francine Conway sent an email to the student body condemning the rise in anti-Semitism in America. And they noted that the rise was occurring to their horror, etc. They wanted to address it. And then the next day, they sent an apology to sincerely apologize for the first email condemning anti-Semitism. This is where the left is, folks. They can't even condemn anti-Semitism when it's clear. The administrator said that the intent of the initial email was to affirm that Rutgers, New Brunswick, is a place where all identities can feel validated and supported, but added that the impact of the communication fell short of that intention. Hmm. I wonder who complained. I wonder who complained about a clear condemnation of anti-Semitism. The administrators went on to say, quote, in hindsight, it is clear to us that the message failed to communicate support for our Palestinian community members. The email read, 
And they go on to say that they university, their university was enriched by our vibrant diversity and that diversity must be supported by equity, inclusion, anti-racism, and the condemnation of all forms of bigotry and hatred, including anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. It comes full circle, doesn't it, folks? This is why I opened the podcast today talking about Islamophobia. Because they now, they after they created that monster of victimization, it unroofs its head every time. And because we responded to it so dysfunctionally as Americans, because we didn't condemn the term and say Islam doesn't have rights, it's an idea. Muslims have rights. Islamophobia is a is a incarnation of the Islamist lobby and of the OIC out of Qatar and elsewhere in order to prevent criticism of Islam so that people became concerned that they were being portrayed as bigots if they were critical of Islam, when in fact many of us Muslims are critical of what the imams say and what they call Islam. And now you see that even condemnations of anti-Semitism have to be juxtaposed with recognition of the Palestinian. No, not of Muslims. Now the Palestinians, and, and again, the care agenda wins. What was the care agenda? They formed themselves in 1994. They initially started as the Palestine Committee of the Muslim Brotherhood in Philadelphia in the 1991 meeting. And then they formed the Palestinian organization in 1994 that called itself the Council on American Islamic Relations. And then when they found they weren't able to get enough of a constituency domestically based in America on the Palestinian cause or Hamas, the Hamas chapter of the Palestinian cause through Nihad Awad, Omar Ahmed and others, they decided to broaden their constituency to be all of Muslims and all fight all of Islamophobia as directed by the OIC is taught by the OIC. And now you see the, the construction of this propagandistic beast, which is the victimization mantra of, of American Muslims. And then they started working closely with vicious anti-Semites in the left, as we saw in the Women's March and the Nation of Islam's infiltration into that and Louis Farrakhan and his grotesque anti-Semitism. And they work together with them, with the Islamists that care. But Rutgers, all of a sudden, was equating when they got criticism from the Palestinians that how could you condemn anti-Semitism and not defend the Palestinian cause at the same time? Because it is equal concerns, isn't it? Never mind the reality that while there are attacks against Jews from California to New York, where's the, have there been attacks against Muslims recently? Is there really this, this huge parallel increase of attacks against Muslims happening? Which they call Islamophobia, these guys. No. But no, anytime you talk about the Jews, you have to talk about Muslims according to the Islamists because that's their stick. That's the stick that they use to keep themselves relevant. And they were so worried under the Trump administration because the Abraham Accords made 
the Arab countries and others pay more attention to higher priorities than defending a terror organization like Hamas and make peace with a secular democracy of Israel, recognize the state, normalize relations. And by the way, the Biden administration now actually, because Abraham Accords has a ring of history to it, is refusing, has now passed an edict, an Orwellian edict that you can't use that term. Now they're using the term like the normalization of diplomacy or something like that. Something with normalization in it. So typical. The Islamists would want it no other way. The Islamists would want Rutgers to issue an apology for basically condemning anti-Semitism. The Islamists would want to normalize Hamas. The Islamists would want to somehow say that criticism of Hamas is bigotry against Muslims like criticism of Israel is is bigotry against Jews. They equate the inequitable. And that's where we are, folks. That's where the state of the wokest movements, the uh, American suppression of free speech, and the complete, complete loss of clarity when it comes to what's happening to the Jewish community. There's a very good piece in the Arizona Republic this week by its lead editor, Phil Boaz, who noted that the history of anti-Semitism is something we should all never forget. And that that history, if we do forget it, will leave us will leave us no longer who we are as Americans. Phil asked the question. He said a friend of his asked him a question. What percentage of pre-World War II Germany was Jewish? In other words, how many Jewish people supposedly created the problem in Hitler's Germany that necessitated a final solution? Understand that the Nazis, always mining for new deaths of depravity, blamed the Jews for everything wrong in their nation. Everything. They and other German anti-Semites blamed the Jews for joblessness, crime, disease, crippling sanctions imposed by Western European victors of the Great War. They blamed them for the global economic depression and hyperinflation. And the answer to that question was 1%. So, not only was the entire conspiracy theory that Jews are responsible for all of that complete psychosis, complete bigotry, exploitation in order to push forth the fascist agenda of the Nazis, but the mechanism the cultural approach to target a minority is not new. The problem of anti-Semitism was at least 2,000 years old, Phil writes. I 
and he gives a very good account of some of the spasms of anti-Semitism across the United States from the time of the Civil War and into the 20th century. He reminds us, he reminds us about how Israel is demonized while Hamas gets a pass. The double standards that apply to the state of Israel versus the communities around it. And yet, he concludes and says, quoting Peace from his book, reportedly NPR canceled an appearance that talks about the triumphant Jewish people and all the great achievements of the golden age of Jewish achievement. What happened? Explain peace. If there had been one powerful lesson for the Jews over the last 2,000 years, it is to keep your head down. When things began to go badly in war, the economy, or some other maelstrom, Jews were typically the first scapegoat. Be cautious is a message Jews have learned very well. Even when things are going well, circumstances can quickly turn dangerous. That explains why American Jews are so on edge these past two weeks, concludes Phil Boaz. Jew hatred has long been a portent portent of greater societal breakdown. It's why attacks on our Jewish countrymen should fill us with all with foreboding. Now, I think it's so important to realize that still in that piece and often in this discussion, we underrepresent the influence of Arabists and Islamists in global anti-Semitism. If you look at the State Department's percentage report of how deep anti-Semitism is in Arab-majority countries, the best is 86% rate, worst is 98% rate of anti-Semitism. And that's because of the confluence of Islamist movements, which are political Islamic movements, and Arabist fascist movements, both of which share a number of horrific ideas, but the most common one is anti-Semitism. I've testified to Congress on anti-Semitism before, and in that testimony, I talked about the operations that are happening globally that are bolstered between the far left and the Islamist media of Al Jazeera and otherwise. And I've talked to you about that on this program before. So I hope and pray that my Jewish brothers and sisters do not have to hide, do not have to put their heads down, do not have to lose their religious freedom, that we should as people of conscience come to their defense, be us Muslim, Christian, white, black, Asian, whatever our, our racial or religious origin may be, we have to understand that we have to fight the scourge of anti-Semitism. And as we do it, our societies will be better and we will prevent the deterioration of our societies into a balkanization and, and sectarian battles. Because it's happening. That's what the left wants. That's why the left, the progressivist, will appease horrific regimes that are anti-Western and anti-democracy and anti-Christian and anti-Semitic like the Islamist of Iran. That is why they seek to lift those up. It's because they don't care about their anti-Semitism and their hate. They just know that it weakens America's foundations of freedom, liberty, and capitalism. And once you can weaken those foundations, then you can advance progressivist agenda. So I hope we gain some clarity 
on how to fight anti-Semitism. I've taken you from what the small symbol of asking the Jewish community not to wear a kippah can mean to what the Rutgers University folks did in their horrific apology after after condemning anti-Semitism to a little history. Open the discussion with your families, with your neighbors. Help us fight this. There are great, there's great work being done out there, not only by our own American Islamic Forum for Democracy and our Muslim Reform Movement, but also Rahil Raza has helped start a council on Muslims against anti-Semitism, which is looking to create a global platform of Muslims that are fighting anti-Semitism. Thank you and God bless. We'll be with you again next week. This is Zuri Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.